loud. Sorry, guys, that's my bad. You look at the story, and it doesn't give us the most flattering picture of the people of God in the Old Testament. It doesn't give us the most flattering picture of the church in the New Testament. You see all of this brokenness, all this sin. And so a lot of times, uh, the tendency is, like, we look elsewhere for hope. We look in a lot of different places for hope, and we look in the world uh, around us, and we find the same thing to be the case. It's only more and more discouraging. We find ourselves longing all the more for that hope that we're looking for and not finding it. I was, uh, I guess it was last Sunday, Eli and I were, were driving home from church, and he started asking about religion, about different religions, what they believe. And so his question was, do Jewish people believe what we believe? He asked, he says, because they read the Old Testament. That's their scripture. That's their Bible. Does that mean they believe the same thing we believe? I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, we believe a lot of the same things except this divergent sort of scenario with Jesus that plays out in the New Testament. That is where we part ways, right? And then he says next, you know, well, what about Muslims? Because he understands there is some connection between these three faiths historically. And then from there, what, what about Hindus? And as he's sitting there processing, kind of digesting all of these things we're talking about, all these things other people believe, all these other things people worship. And you know how it goes. The first time you hear what other people believe about God than you or what they worship, it just sounds crazy. It sounds absolutely obnoxious and ridiculous. And you're like, how? And as he's sitting there listening to all of this, he asks this question, or he makes this statement, I guess. It, it, it's so honest. He says, you know that? That's kind of hard to believe. All that stuff is just hard to believe. And he, he just says, e even what we believe. And I really appreciated that, that moment of just like real honesty. You know, it, it's just, it, it is hard to believe. Because I, I feel like that's Advent. It is hard to believe. This is the reality of life. There are so many moments that challenge faith, that make it hard to believe, right? Because we do, as Paul says, in, in Advent, we're coming back to this story that we've heard over and over again. We're remembering it, right? But we come back to a story and we find that the story says one thing and our experiences are saying another thing entirely. And it's just hard to believe that could actually be true, right? How, we say, is Jesus near in the middle of all of this? How is Jesus going to keep that promise that he made to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth as it is there in heaven, right? If that is going to happen, what's that going to look like? How can that happen in the middle of all of this that we see playing out around us in our lives at a personal level and at something much larger than that? It's hard to believe, he says. Blaise Pascal was um, a bit of an overachiever as far as I'm concerned, uh, you may have heard his name before because he's connected to so many different things. He was a mathematician. He was a physicist. Uh, he was a bit of a philosopher. You might have heard his name uh, in philosophy class as well. And he was also a Christian. He converted to Christian faith. He became a, a Catholic uh, somewhere along the middle of his life. He didn't live very long, but he wrote a lot during that time. And a lot of the things he wrote were actually about faith. Uh, and he was very interested in apologetics. And there's this thing he says in a book he wrote called Penseis. Thoughts is what that means. And this is what he says. It's always stuck with me. He says, What reason have they, referring to atheists, for saying that we cannot rise from the dead? What is more difficult, to be born 
or to rise again. That what has never been should be, or that what has been should be again. What is more difficult, he says, to be born or simply to rise again? That what has never been should be, or that what has been can be again, right? So we all know this. He knows this. He's addressing it. One of the things that most people wrestle with about our faith is resurrection. It is hard to believe that a man could defeat death, that he could overcome death, that a man who was literally, physically, certifiably dead could be alive again. How could that actually happen, right? We all know this is a thing. Maybe you've wrestled with it yourself. But Pascal points out how anachronistic that all is because we don't question birth. We would never question birth. We recognize birth to be real. It is beautiful. It is painful, right? We know it. We've seen it. We, we would never question birth, right? There are no conspiracy theories about birth. Now, the resurrection, on the other hand, there are all kinds of theories. People tried to explain how Jesus had done this little magic trick, how the church could believe that he was really alive. Well, you know, someone stole his body. This might have happened, right? That sort of Dan Brown thing starts to happen, right? This is the Da Vinci Code all over again, right? And we've got all our theories. But there are no conspiracy theories about birth. Except with kids, I guess, right? They've got some interesting theories about birth. It gets kind of out there, obviously, if you let them explain it for themselves, right? It, it sounds very strange to them. But birth is something we all recognize. Although I didn't see my own birth, I didn't experience it, I don't recall it, I trust my parents when they tell me that's what happened. You came into the world the same way your children came into the world. What you saw play out, played out for you. I believe it, though I did not experience it, right? We would never doubt it. We've seen it again and again. And it's almost kind of ordinary, right? We've got a lot of people having babies right now in our church, at this point, it just feels kind of ordinary. It's like, oh, yeah, they had a baby too? Okay. And he's pointing out how miraculous the idea of birth is, that that is the way you and I came into this world. It's unreal. He asks the question, what's harder, to be born or to rise again, right? That what has never been can be or that what has been can be again. As crazy as something like resurrection is, he says birth is even crazier. And if you can believe that, that we entered into the world like that, that we could come from nothing, it seems. Why could God not do this, he's saying. As crazy as resurrection might seem, birth is crazier. And the thing I was reminded of this week is that Advent's even crazier than that. What we're celebrating, what we're doing in this season is even wilder than all of that. Advent is asking us to believe something even more absurd, not just that, that you and I entered into the world that way, in this miraculous, beautiful, painful way, right? Not just that, but that God himself entered into this world that way. It's asking us to believe that Jesus, the very Son of God, is completely human while somehow miraculously, miraculously being completely God. God took on human flesh. He came into this world the same way that you and I came into this world. He entered into this world the same way and thereby 
It's asking us to believe that the hope we so often kind of consign to some point in the distant future to heaven, that hope of heaven, the hope of all eternity has entered into this world. It has come to us. If Jesus has entered into the world this way, hope has entered into the world this way. And the hope that feels so far away from us so often is actually much nearer than we realize. This is what Advent is pressing upon us. But more than that, Advent is asking us to go one step further. If Christ himself, the very Son of God, has entered into human existence this way, if he has come into our world this way once, it's no more absurd to think that he could do it again. This is our hope. It's pressing this upon us. Advent reminds us that hope is a lot like birth. It is a long time coming. It never comes quickly enough. Hope is so much like birth. And as crazy as it seems, as little sense as it makes the first time you hear it and you're trying to process it as a child, you've got all kinds of questions the first time somebody explains this to you. Hope is the same way. It feels crazy, it feels distant, it feels unreal, but it is real and it is beautiful and it is painful. Advent reminds us that real hope is always painful. Any hope that is convenient or simple is a sham. Hope is always painful. It has always been painful. And it is in the midst of the pain of our experience, the pain of what we see going on in the world around us or in our own lives personally, that Advent is calling us back to the story. Come back to the story. Come back to this beautiful hope, Paul says. And again, we, we all want hope, right? Where do I sign up, please? We all want encouragement, especially at the end of a year. We're, we're more reflective at the end of the year. We have more time to think about it. We all want encouragement. But what makes us wonder if all of this can really be believed, if this hope is actually real, is what we all know. It's, it's our circumstances. And though we know that should not affect what we believe, it does. No matter how many times we know it, our faith waxes and wanes with our circumstances so often. This is just the reality of it. We find ourselves discouraged and worn down. We find ourselves overwhelmed by these things. It is hard to believe because I know, frankly, what a mess my own life is. It just is. It's hard to believe. And, and I think most of us feel that at some level. It is hard to believe this because I, I know that, that Scripture is telling me I, I'm, I'm redeemed, that I'm being made new, and yet, personally, I'm just not seeing it. Maybe people from the outside can see it, but frankly, I think people know what a mess my life is, and they don't even know the half of it. If they knew this sort of internal struggle, if they knew the hidden aspects of who I am, right? They knew what I look like, what I appear like, but me? No, you don't actually know me. This is something we all wrestle with. You don't actually know me. And it makes it very hard to believe, right? You don't know what a mess my life is. People always feel this the heaviness and the burden of it. And Paul says, stop. Like, like, stop looking at your circumstances. Stop looking at yourself and come back to the story. 
Like, look at something larger than your circumstances. See something. Step back from all of that. Our propensity for reflection and introspection and turning inward and trying to answer these questions about who I am, right? Self-understanding in our day. Like, it rules the day, it seems. And it's poisonous sometimes because we can spend all of our lives looking at self, trying to understand self. And Paul says, stop worrying about self and circumstance and come back to the story. These Roman believers, they are struggling. They find themselves under like the vice clamp of the empire. They're living in the epicenter of the Roman empire, and they are the people the empire hates the most at this time. They don't just have problems with the empire. They got problems with one another. There are all these disagreements and divisions, and it feels like everything's just falling apart. And Paul says, stop looking there. Look at the story. Have you read the story? Do you know it? Now, when Paul says scripture, keep in mind, he means the Old Testament. He's writing the New Testament presently. He doesn't think of it that way. He doesn't see this in that sort of way. When he says scriptures, he's saying, come to the the Old Testament scriptures. Look at that story. So when he says, look to the scriptures, he's saying like, do you remember that? Do you know that it's been a mess since the third chapter? Do you realize that God has always been manifesting this beautiful hope through the painful experience of his people? Do you realize that God has always been making himself known in the midst of his people's mess and brokenness? That's the way it's always been, and why would you expect something else? Come back to the story. There's hope for every individual believer, but he's saying even at a larger level, There's hope for the church in all of its brokenness and division and hurt. Come back to the story, he's saying. But he goes even bigger than just the idea that there can be unity in the Roman church in the midst of their division and arguments and all of this. Paul says, if you pay attention, if you listen to that story, you'll begin to realize that it's bigger than just you or your circumstance. It's bigger than just us and our circumstance. Like, he takes it to this macro, sort of meta level. He starts talking about things in a much bigger way. He says it's bigger than just us. Christ has become a servant, he says, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, maybe you caught this while Mackenzie was reading. He's just quoting scripture, right? He's telling us we need to come back to the story, that we need to look to the scriptures for hope and encouragement and life. And then he starts doing exactly that. He's like, see, watch. He begins to quote. He starts talking about Gentiles, right? He starts talking about the nations, right? Not just you, not just me, not just us. There's a hope for us. Yes, that and more, the nations he's talking about. And then he starts to to name the Psalms. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He wants to come from every part of the story so you can see it's always been this way. There was always a hope that was larger than just you and your personal life and your personal struggle and what you're going through. There was always a hope that was meant to be for the ends of the earth, for the Gentiles, he says. God intends to be merciful not just to me, but to the ends of the earth. And Advent has a way of doing that to us. Advent has a way of reminding us. This is is not merely about your experience. This is not merely about your joy. This is not merely about your traditions, right? There is something bigger happening in this. 
Advent reminds us of God's nearness to us, not just for my sake alone, right? It reminds us of Christ's nearness to us, but not just for me, not just to help me or comfort me or make me feel better. Advent is not therapeutic, and so often we treat it like it is. It's just the time of year where we can go, you know what? I can be nostalgic, and I can unplug, and I can just feel better about all that's wrong with the world. And Advent is not trying to do that. It's something bigger than just us feeling better. It's not just bringing me hope and comfort. It is bringing hope and comfort to the nations, to those outside of my experience, to those that don't even know yet. This is the reality. But here's the thing. When I start thinking about the world getting better, when I start thinking about like hope for the ends of the earth, when I start considering the problems in our world, the place I turn to is not necessarily scripture. Like when we start thinking about global hunger, we get real practical. We've got all kinds of solutions in mind. When we start thinking about pandemics and our response to them, when we start thinking about climate change, when we start thinking about war, or, or violence, all of these things. We start thinking about systemic poverty that exists all around the world, right? When we think about these things, we tend to think in terms of human progress, human ingenuity, we can fix this. If we all just united and came together, it could get better, right? So what we need to do is we need to get the most intelligent people in the world all in the same room. We need to get the most intelligent and brilliant scientists. We need to get the most influential politicians, the most wealthy philanthropists. And if we can bring them all together, if we can get them all on the same page, we could fix hunger and we could stop wars. And we could have better responses to pandemics and climate change, right? We could make it better. And Paul is saying, well, sure. There's nothing wrong with doing that. God, I hope we're trying to do this ourselves. But Paul says at the same time, Come back to the story. Like there is a hope bigger than what you can do with your own hands. There's a hope bigger than what you can conceive of. You can't fix the world. Come back to the story. Have you read the story? Advent is calling us back again and again to a story that has become familiar and ordinary to us and reminding us like Pascal of the miraculous reality that Christ has come and he is coming again. Advent calls us back to the story. And Advent calls us really out to the outskirts of town, um, out to the edges of the wilderness, right? That's where John is preaching. John the Baptist is out there, away from the city, away from the temple. There's John out there on the outskirts of town, and he's screaming about something, and nobody really knows what it is. There's this wild, seemingly angry, very passionate man. He looks like no one else. And Advent calls us to come and listen to him preach. You have to come and listen to John preach. You have to see it. It is a sight to behold. Come and see John preach. And John is saying, repent, for the kingdom is near. Repent, the kingdom is near. John says the kingdom, the kingdom of God is is our hope. That's what we actually need. God reigning in this world and not me, not us, and not whatever conglomerate of people we think could fix it all, right? That is what this world desperately needs, right? And I think we're all on board. The idea of a good God reigning in this world sounds great. Again, sign me up. But then there's that word. He has to use it. 
He has to get all archaic, all intense, fire and brimstone. He has to tell me I need to repent. Here's the thing you long for. Here's the thing you want. At the depth of your being, here it is. This is what the world actually needs. This is what you've been seeking. And then he says, repent. And you say, I'm going to try something else first. I'm going to look elsewhere. And we do. Like when it comes to hope and encouragement, we're looking in a lot of places to find it, right? We're looking in a lot of places to try and find a way to feel better about the world, about ourselves, right? We are looking in all kinds of places. And the same thing was true in Jesus' day. The people of Jesus' culture were looking for hope in so many different places. They found themselves under the oppression of the most powerful empire the world had ever known. And it had been this way a long time for them. Some of them say, okay, here is our hope, rebellion. We can revolt. We can strike the empire where it hurts the most. The violent overthrow of this empire is the only way Israel will ever be great again. And so... That's what they choose to do. Others say it's reform. They say God has chosen to turn away from us because we're not living righteous lives. If we changed our lives, you know these people, the Pharisees, right? They say if we reformed our lives, if we lived more righteously, then God would begin to show his favor to us again. This is our hope. We have to live better. We've got to do better things. That sounds close to repentance, but the problem is they became really self-righteous, you remember. And then there's this other group of people, kind of like the the, the Sadducees. These are people who say, we can only overcome the empire by becoming the empire. You can't beat it, you just have to become it. You have to be absorbed into it and become this sort of subversive force beneath the surface, working to make Israel what you want it to be. And that's what they're doing. They're looking in so many different places for hope. They're looking elsewhere. The repentance thing doesn't sound so attractive. And yet, the crowds just keep coming to him. You read Matthew 3. It's one of our passages for today in the lectionary. Matthew 3, you see people from all over the countryside are coming to hear John preach. Now, we expect that the desperate, low-class types would show up because they need something, right? They would listen to this kind of person. But it's not just them. The Pharisees show up, and the Sadducees, they they show up. All these powerful and influential people are showing up to listen to John. Why are they showing up? Why are they coming out to hear him? It's not just the low-class, desperate types. It is the, the upper echelons of their society. They cannot help but be drawn to him. No matter what harsh things he says, he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, Who told you to flee the coming wrath, you brood of vipers, you're snakes, he says. And yet they just keep coming out to hear him. They come to see the show. What's he got to say? And we keep coming back to hear him. We're still captivated by the hope he's offering us. Whether it's the hope we were looking for or not, we're captivated by it. And I think it's because as much as we avoid it, As much as we try to make Advent and Christmas and life about something other than this, as much as we try to find hope and comfort and joy and peace somewhere else, we know deep down in the fiber of our being, at the depth of who we are, that what we want is Advent. What we want 
is the coming of the kingdom. What we want is the God who created us to dwell near to us, to reign, to bring heaven to earth. That's what we long for at the depth of our being. And the truth is, sometimes we don't even realize that's what we want, right? We're seeking for all these different things. We think we know what we want, but we don't actually know what we want. And John is saying, the thing you actually want, the thing you're actually longing for, that you're actually seeking. It's God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. And as harsh as it is, something like repentance, when John says you have to change, everything has to change, as harsh as it is to hear those words, but apparently that means there's something wrong with me. There are things that need to change about me. We know, even as hard as that is to hear, that somewhere deep down we, we get that the hope that we're longing for. It has always been that way. It has always been painful. It has always cost us something. Hope has always been painful. Think about it. Like our entire lives, we've been confronted with this Advent reality. You can't get away from it. You can try to do something else. And we do. You can try to do Advent a completely different way. You can make it nostalgic and beautiful and decorated and pretty. You can make it materialistic. Nothing, nothing will let you escape it. You know it from the time you were a kid, right? Think about this season. I think about it all the time. Every year I come back to it. When you're a child, this season is characterized by all this anticipation, right? All this buildup, right? Anticipation and not for the coming of Jesus. That would be ridiculous, right? Anticipation for the newest, most sensational product for tiny humans, that's what you're anticipating. That's what you're longing for. And then you get it. You get it. You unwrap it. There it is. And you break it. Or you lose it. Or you realize that Duke Kaboom doesn't fly in real life like he does in the commercial. That's for all you parents out there that know Toy Story, all right? Or other people who apparently watch G-rated movies with me. That's cool. But there's this point where you realize... That product didn't change your life. And some of us are still convinced that the newer iPhone will, like, actually change our life. And it just, it just won't. Like, getting a new iPad, it just, it just won't fix your life, right? And we're confronted with it over and over again. It happens to me over and over. It doesn't satisfy our longing, right? There's that day somewhere later in our childhood where somebody confronts us with the reality that not everybody gets what you get. That the presence, the gifts, the experience you have is not the same as everybody else. What you have come to expect is not what everybody else expects. That good behavior isn't actually what makes all of this possible. What makes it possible is money. And not everyone has that. And that means that some people are excluded from your joyous experience. And the first time you're confronted with that, it makes you long for a joy that is beyond just you. It makes you want something lasting for somebody else, not just you. Something that's beyond just you. This is the way life goes. When you're a student, I think about this all the time too. Like we were saying, we got all these college students. And there's this moment in your life where you're just longing for graduation. You're just longing to be done, right? Because then you'll get a job, a decent paying job and a place of your own. You'll be independent, right? Life will be good then. And then you get that job, and you're like, I don't make as much money as I ought to make. And you get that place of your own, and it comes with this oppressive mortgage payment. 
that requires that you get a better paying job. And so while you're working that first job, you're thinking about the next one always because you need more, right? And the whole time your boss is saying really inappropriate things somewhere in the background, asking you to do things he should not be asking you to do. Like that, that was not a part of my job description. Why is this happening, right? There again with the longing. When you're single, you find yourself in this place of a lot of times the really painful experience of longing for relationship. And then you get that relationship, and you realize this companion is not perfect. They don't fit the description you had in mind, right? Your list of criteria for what your soulmate should be is not being met, right? They don't tick all of the boxes. They've got issues, and, and, and you've got issues, and there's all this sacrifice that comes along with it, and it's really painful, right? And even if in that stage of infatuation with this person, they feel really perfect to you, inevitably you come to realize that people are always changing. And the person you are so devoted to and love so much, they are not frozen in time. You cannot preserve them. And there's no guarantee of what they will be in five years or 15 years, or 50 years. You have no idea what you're going to get at the end of all of this. And there's all this sacrifice, right? And so there's this longing, right? This sense of like, everything I've ever laid hold to could not satisfy me in the way that I thought it could. When you're a parent, it's always the next phase. Man, if we can get out of this phase, man, if we can get into the next stage, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit easier. Life's going to get a little bit easier, get a little less busy, a little bit less crazy. The kids will probably behave a little bit better. They're just in a stage, right? And then you realize the next stage is just as complicated. Every stage is complicated. Every stage is difficult. There is a longing that characterizes every aspect of our experience as humanity. This is who we are. We know it. You cannot get away from Advent. You are longing for something you cannot satisfy on your own. Advent is sewn into the fabric of our existence. You will not escape it. It will always be there pestering you. You are longing for the coming of the kingdom. You are not longing for, for more. The, the commercials and the advertisements will tell you you are longing for more. You need more. You need better. You don't want more. You don't want better. You want the kingdom down deep in the depth of who you are. You want Jesus to reign in this world. You want his words and those words of John about a kingdom and, and one that's different than any you've ever known coming. That's what you want. You want joy and comfort and hope that's lasting, even if it's painful, even if it costs you everything, you want it. And John says, that's what I'm offering you. He's coming, he's near, but everything has to change. Everything about you, everything about this world is going to have to change. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a, a Danish philosopher. You might be familiar with his name. And uh, Kierkegaard tells a, a parable. Uh, he creates this parable of the of vandal. Uh, and the story is the vandal breaks into a department store late at night. Maybe you've heard this story, maybe not. Breaks into the department store, and uh, the owners come in the next morning to open up, and they realize what's happened. They see the broken glass, and they enter into the store and begin to assess the damage. What all was stolen? What all was damaged? And uh, as they look around, they, they spend a while checking everything, and they come to this realization that nothing is gone. Everything's still there. 
And they don't know what to think of that. Someone's just vandalized the store, apparently, and, and just kind of left. They didn't take anything. Everything is accounted for. It's all here. And it's not until the customers show up and begin to, to bring their, their inventory to the, to the register to pay that the owners realize what actually happened. He hasn't stolen anything. The vandal has gone to the store and rearranged all the price tags. The most precious items in the place, the jewelry, the china, it's being sold for pennies. And the most kitschy, cheap, throwaway garbage toys that we give our children sometimes, it's hundreds of dollars. And Kierkegaard says, that is what the gospel is like. That is what it's like when God enters into our world. If God has entered into our world, if the kingdom is coming, if the king is here, it is a kingdom unlike any you have ever known, and this king is unlike any you have ever known, and that means all these things that you have valued your whole life, that you thought were so important, that you thought mattered so much, they don't mean as much as you thought. And there are all these other things you've been neglecting for so long, and that's what actually matters. That's what actually can bring you joy. That's what actually can make you holy. That's what can actually bring you comfort. You can have that, but you have to lay aside everything else. You have to let go of all these things you've been clinging to as valuable. Repent, John says. In this season, like we're looking toward joy and comfort and hope, and, and John says there's one catch. You have to submit yourself to the king. You have to like give yourself. You have to actually repent and begin to rearrange the inventory of your life. You have to rethink some things. And that's painful. But Advent reminds us again and again, hope has always been painful. Any hope that is real is painful. And if it's convenient and it's quick and easy, it's fake. You want real and lasting hope. You want lasting joy. You want comfort beyond just yourself, and there's a path to it. It's this king and this kingdom and me giving myself to it. Repent, he says. The kingdom is near. Christ has come, and Christ is near once more. But can you actually give yourself completely to him? This is where your hope is found. Come back to the story, Paul says. John says, come to the, the kingdom. Can we come back? Or are we too enchanted by everything else? Are we satisfied with a, a fancy imitation? Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this season. I, I thank you for yeah, your goodness to us. And we're grateful for your nearness, God, and we pray that you would press upon us your nearness. That we would be a people who know how to believe in the midst of the mess that is going all around us and in us. God, I pray that we would be able to, to see you at work. That we would be a people who take hope, not in ourselves, not in fixing ourselves or making ourselves better or feeling better, whatever it might be, God. But our hope would be completely tied to this story you have been telling. That we would come to realize that though our life is painful, you have always been revealing your beautiful hope in the midst of our pain. In spite of our pain, through our pain. And that would keep us from being deterred. 
from walking away, from turning our backs, from trying to find hope or joy elsewhere. God, may we find ourselves satisfied in your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.